I'm going to talk uh, briefly about uh, nutrition and health transitions and uh, to think about the different kinds of uh, transitions that are important uh, when thinking about, uh, thinking about health patterns. So there are three kinds, I think, that are particularly relevant to, to what we're talking about. First of all, demographic transitions epidemiological transitions and nutritional transitions. Now, demographic transitions are uh, usually the move from uh, um, high fertility and high mortality uh, population regime to uh, low fertility and low mortality regimes. So this has happened um, across the world and continues to happen uh, across uh, much of the um, uh, middle and low income countries such that uh, first of all, uh, uh, what happens is death rates start to come down, usually through public health measures and uh, improved uh, things like sanitation, primary health care and so on. And after that, birth rates start to decline, usually because uh, the need to have large families uh, seems to change because if more children are surviving, then uh, in most societies, people have an idea of what the ideal number of children might be for them. It varies, obviously, from, from family to family. Uh, but um, the calculations that family make, families make are, if we can expect you know, one child in three to die, then, then we, you know, we will plan accordingly. If we expect all children to survive, then uh, our confidence in the future also uh, improves and our, our need to have uh, more children um, also declines. So, so in the world today, you know, there are countries where death rates have come down, like in Egypt, Kenya and India. Birth rates are starting to come down. There are countries like, like Brazil where you know, the uh, death rates have come down, birth rates are already decreasing quite, quite significantly. And then we have countries like uh, the United States, Japan, France, the UK, where both death rates and birth rates are down to a, to a level, even now where um, the, uh, at their present rates, they will result in population decline because, uh, uh, because birth rates are now, now uh, uh, lower, than, uh, lower than mortality rates. So uh, that's the, the demographic transition, so changing disease patterns. What this means in terms of uh, epidemiology is changing patterns in, uh, in disease. As we can see, well, as a country modernizes, it moves from a uh, situation of having uh, high mortality due to infectious disease uh, to a, a, a situation where more people die from non-communicable diseases. And this is where much of the world is now. There are still some countries where infectious diseases dominate, but actually even in the middle income and, and in some of the low income countries, non-communicable diseases are, are now much more, uh, much more uh, important. <clears throat> it's also possible to characterize the patterns of, of, of transition. Uh, you know, for example, uh, in the sort of early stages of modernization, one of the things that tends to go up is accidents. That is when societies start to become mechanized and people start to get motorbikes and start to get cars. And uh, the environment in which 
these things are used is very poorly regulated, and so there are usually high levels of high levels of accidents. And it's only at uh, at later stages when the road use regulations and the use of uh, motor cars is is, uh, is is more tightly regulated that these things start to decline. And uh, 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 and so that's why that's often the first the first wave. After that. It varies from place to place, but usually it's something like type 2 diabetes rates start to increase, it's the next wave cardiovascular disease rates start to increase, and then finally cancer rates start to increase wave by wave in this, in this uh, um, epidemiological transition model. Nutrition transition has been written about by, by uh, somebody called Barry Popkin. And it characterizes the change from hunting and gathering societies through traditional agriculture, food processing and storage, to modern agriculture, food processing, storage and distribution, the changes in the, in, 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 in the food systems. So it's been characterized in, in this kind of very schematic way, which has been, is a little bit controversial because it doesn't happen in the same way. In, in, in all places. If we think about the, the, the prehistory of human societies, we were one stage hunter-gatherers, all of us, um, and then with agriculture, um, this changed how most of societies lived. And then with industrial revolution, industrialization, uh, the food shortages that were known in earlier times started to decrease. Uh, to the point where we're able to control our food supplies. And the more important uh, diseases are the degenerative ones, the, the, the chronic diseases. There's an anticipation in this model that there'll be a behavioral change that goes with being a postmodern society where we all become so smart and intelligent that we control chronic disease and, and we control infectious disease and we live healthy, uh, happy lives. And I feel that is a bit of a fiction because whenever you think you get close to what is going to be a perfect situation, then it's immediately challenged. It's already challenged with the resurgence of infectious disease anyway. So uh, I, I think that that's a, a little bit of an idealization. To characterize aspects of the nutrition transition, uh, from moving from traditional to modern marketing of food, in India, for example, you still have street vendors that would bring food to the market from from uh, uh, outlying uh, areas in, in town, from from towns, uh, from the countryside into into towns and cities, and but there's a shift towards supermarketization, whereby things are packaged. And when things are packaged, you already have, you know, a change in the distribution system, and that while you have local markets, uh, you have very local. Um, uh, food supplies. When you start to get supermarkets, then this, the food supply could become quite distant. You start to expose people to foods from many different places, including uh, including other parts of the world. The other thing from eating patterns, something else that, that also changes. Uh, if you're a hunter-gatherer, then you will opportunistically forage from what's available around the environment. The closest equivalent modern um, type of foraging is the buffet uh, because there the, you have all kinds of, of foods that are available and you want to pick from everything. You know when you're faced with a buffet you really want to try everything. That's, that's just human nature. But it's also you know how we have evolved to be. You know we seek novelty in food and we seek to to be able to try everything that seems to be available. So there is a buffet effect with respect to obesity for example that uh, people do eat more 
if they're faced with many more food choices. And that's that's uh, that's uh, that's a straightforward knowledge. The other thing that changes is food from being something for subsistence to being a commodity. And there's an um, a tension between you know the food you eat, which may have uh, cultural values, may have spiritual values, as well as nutritional ones and family values and so on, to something that is traded, and traded in the same way that oil is traded. And part of the, the, the food shortage issues that came, the price rises that came in 2008 um, after the, 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 the financial collapse was that there were speculators moving into, uh, into um, into the food market as something to trade with. And so there's speculation in food, and this led to instability in food prices. Now, unlike oil and many other commodities, people actually die if food prices start to increase dramatically. And there were food riots in a number of countries as a consequence of that. Because when food is traded as it is, it's traded as a commodity, not as, not as something that we understand that will, that will nourish us. And food, of course, is traded across the world and in you know bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger vessels. And food is part of major distribution systems in a way that most other commodities are not, because everybody needs to eat every day. And so, making sure that food is available when people want it, where people want it, is a is a major enterprise. This is a supermarket chain called Tesco in the UK, and the map shows the distribution points for, 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 for different commodities. So they have a computerized system within the supermarket. When they do the barcodes, they know what's disappeared from the shelf so that when they come back to, to resupply the store, they bring back as much as they anticipate selling in, 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 the, in the next week so that all the time they're re replacing what was taken. There's very <coughs> network mathematics is involved in determining and making sure that what arrives on the shelf is, is what is needed in the different places. It's not just it's the mathematics behind this, the distribution and logistics system behind it is a very, <clears throat> it's a very, very complex system. Modern food supply chains also spread new cultures of consumption, and it's usually the things that are, you know, symbolically uh, understood as being powerful, like uh, brands like like uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, for example. Uh, because there's a, a taste for these things, and they become the taste of modernization in many places because you can move them from place to place. They don't deteriorate very quickly. They can be transported from around the world, and they become you know, symbols, of, symbols of modernity. The control of food systems is, is actually quite um, sobering to think about <clears throat> because uh, if we take, for example, a, a company like, like Walmart, uh, which has uh, over 8,000 stores in the U.S. and in 14 other countries. Its international presence is quite significant, particularly in Mexico, Nicaragua, uh, but also in Japan, the United Kingdom, in Guatemala. Uh, so it has a global presence. So not only does it control distribution, it also controls aspects of retail in the different countries. Then when you think about... Um, how much of the food chain is controlled by a small number of corporations. The global food system is actually controlled by a very small number of very powerful groups. So the agricultural industry, the farm industry, the food processing industry, food retailers, all of these things are come together 
in a synergy of, 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 of corporations. So, uh, you know, a company like Carrefour, for example, in France, operates across Latin America, across Asia, across, across Europe, controls food retail, but also has significant input into food processing and trade, also significant input into, into uh, what is farmed where. So all of these, are, all of these things are, are interconnected. And what's happening with the food system is the consolidation Farming, wholesaling, processing, distribution, and retail, all of these things pushing together. So the small farmer is constantly being pushed out of these, out of these systems because you know, they have to be able to operate in some uh, relationship to, uh, to, uh, to the global supply chain. What it does is it drives food prices down, but it also disenfranchises poor farmers because a small producer cannot, he cannot produce uh, things uh, at at uh, at an appropriate price to be able to meet this. Okay, all these things: demographic transition, epidemiological transition, nutrition transition, all come together, um, and they inform each other because you know family size, population size, impacts on disease patterns. The food that people eat impacts on their resistance to infection. Um, it impacts on their likelihood of getting chronic disease. So all of these things in any particular society come together. It's not just that disease patterns are changing, food patterns are changing, and also population patterns are changing. Family sizes change, but also the urban, rural uh, composition of, of a country also changes. So all of these things uh, operate operate together. So I'll finish with this slide, which is just questioning the idea of transition. That I've mentioned this kind of narrative towards modernization, but is it inevitable? Is it historical? It happens slightly differently in different places. There's a transition mania in the world at the moment because we can see changes happening everywhere, so we want to structure it. But is the structure that we have the right structure? Um, we don't know what the endpoints of transition are. Do we expect everything to converge to a Western pattern? And I suspect underpinning a lot of this is the idea that we all become a mini United States or a mini Western Europe or something like that. And I suspect that's actually the wrong endpoint because if you look at China, that's not what it's doing. China is not converging with, with, with the West, for example. And there are challenges to the transition. You know, globalization is not a unified process. Globalization and modernization fuels inequality, so there are bigger inequalities in the world. That's just what markets do. They create inequalities. Um, there has been recession, economic stagnation, and that has implications for what happens in places. Do they go backwards? Do they go forwards or do they just change? The idea of backwards and forwards, I think, is problematic in the idea of, 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 uh, of transition. There is resurgent infection. The moment they said that infectious disease was conquered, the year after they identified HIV-AIDS. So smallpox was conquered and all of infectious disease would be, would be conquered forever. And actually two years later, uh, HIV-AIDS was identified as being a new, new infection. And then finally, what do economies depend on? How much stuff, how much material is out there? Is there enough to be able to satisfy the appetites of everybody on the planet to be able to live to a very high material standard? Again, if you're looking towards a convergence with you know, Western industrialized countries and you want everybody in the world to have that same level of affluence, it's simply impossible because there isn't enough material on the planet to, to sustain it. I'll finish there. Thank you.